The suspension of fintech giant Ant Group's listing in Shanghai and Hong Kong did highlight concerns about investing in China, but the opportunity in the world's second largest economy is huge. While IPOs need to be approached carefully, investors are understandably keen to get in on the secular growth trends in Asia. I'm James Norrington, and recently I spoke with Robin Parbrook, co-manager of the Schroeder Asian Total Return Investment Company, who shared his approach to picking the most attractive Asian companies, along with general insights from his decades of experience living and investing in Asia. I kicked off by asking Robin about valuations in Chinese tech stocks following their spectacular run. Uh, it's, it's obviously been a, a very interesting year, and, and we've seen obviously that, that, that Asia, particularly China, is, re, is recovering, recovering quicker than the rest of the world, first in and first out. I was wondering, really, sort of, how do you feel now about the valuations um, in, in certain Chinese sectors, particularly Chinese tech, after the strong performance in recent months? Yeah, I guess it depends how you define tech, of course, James, because there is tech's one of those wonderful words that doesn't really mean anything. It's a bit like sustainability, which means absolutely nothing or means very different things to different people. But before you get me talk about ESG, going back to tech, um, if you're talking about Chinese internet stocks or are we talking about Chinese software stocks, semiconductor stocks or Chinese EMS stocks, which are basically the ones that assemble uh, handsets. So each different sector obviously has had Broadly speaking, all those sectors have been relatively strong, as has the overall Chinese market, with the obvious exceptions like everywhere else, Chinese banks, telecoms, property have not performed. Within the tech sector, the and again, in China, it gets more complicated because you've got US-listed China stocks, Hong Kong-listed China stocks, and Asia-listed China stocks. Um, so if one was taking Asia's, they are expensive across the board, and in my view, in all of those segments where they're represented in the A-share index. So the A-share index being the China onshore index. Um, so broadly speaking, we think A-shares in general are expensive. I wouldn't be recommending clients to, to chase A-shares at the moment. There's individual A-shares we obviously we like. We do still have a few in our funds. But overall, it's been the best performing part of the Chinese market because retail investors in China itself have chased up that sector. And retail investors, like everywhere else, they chase the high speed of stocks, which, of course, are those stocks that, broadly speaking, you could define under that tagline tech. So it gets more interesting when you look at the U.S.-listed and the Hong Kong-listed China stocks. Um, U.S.-listed China stocks, which are mostly Internet stocks, um, have done well this year. Um, on the other hand, they've done well for good reasons. So their businesses are doing really well for all the same reasons that Amazon, Netflix, etc. have done well. Everyone's buying things online. You've seen the shift that's happening to the move to online has accelerated plus of COVID. Is that structural? We think it probably is. So the fact that these stocks uh, have done well is to some extent justified. So we still quite like some of the large cap Chinese internet stocks. Some of the more second-tier Chinese internet stocks listed in the U.S., these are stocks that have doubled or trebled this year, do look very uh, aggressively valued and, in our view, overvalued. They've been pushed up on the scene. And the last sector on the tech side, the US, the Hong Kong-listed tech stocks, uh, on the other hand, which is probably where the better opportunities lie from a bottom-up perspective, we do see some value in there, particularly in some of the, the more hardware-related uh, Chinese names, uh, and depending whether you count 
Taiwan is part of China or not. So obviously, if you're mainland Chinese, you, you think Taiwan's part of China. If you're Taiwanese, you certainly don't think you're part of China. But depending where you classify Taiwan, we still like Taiwanese uh, tech companies, particularly in the semiconductor space, uh, where there's still quite a lot of value added, some structural trends really playing in their favor there. So it's a, a long answer to a, a fairly short question, I'm afraid, James, but it's not a, you know, it's, you know there's no either categorization of what a China stock is or, or what a tech stock is. So you, you inevitably get, you know, dif- different uh, views and different parts because it's such a huge part of our, our benchmark. And um, we obviously we have um, we we can't really get over without talking about it with the 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 anti the ant group IPO um, uh, which you know, possibly should could happen in the next couple of weeks. Um, what does that signal about the evolution of Asian capital markets generally, um, and then the, the maturation, if you like, of, uh, of Asian capital markets, and uh, and how that affects the decisions you make in in, in how you allocate capital on and, and invest across the different exchanges and ways of accessing China. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really. I mean, it's, it's been a, a great. I don't think there's any sudden groundbreaking change. I mean, for us, all the funds we run are completely unconstrained. So my fund does actually have UK listed stocks. It's got a French listed stock. Uh, I would say the, the 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 stocks I own in my my fund, I don't care where they're listed. What I'm interested in is is the primary driver of the business of this stock driven by secular trends as we see them in the universe I'm looking at, which my background, I spent 30 years looking at Asia, 25 years I lived in Hong Kong or Singapore. So if I do have an investment angle or an investment advantage or some intellectual property, it comes from my experience of 30 years of experience of Asia, mostly having lived there. So I really don't care where a stock's listed. It's what it does and what's driving the business I'm interested in. So as you say, as you mentioned, James, obviously the benchmark has changed Hugely over time, if you went back to or just back to doing this the other day. Um, so Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Malaysia. So four of the biggest markets in ASEAN. Uh, total population, probably about 400 million people. Um, maybe a little bit more, actually. Um, it's a little bit more, about 450 million people. So when I was investing in about 94, 95, which is when I first started managing, managing money, those four markets were about 60, 70% of the standard Asian benchmark at the time. Um, my colleague and I were doing the numbers yesterday, but now 5% of the Asian benchmark. So uh, effectively, from a, a benchmark perspective, those countries no longer matter at all. Um, China, which used to not be in the benchmark 25 years ago, uh, because all the capital markets were closed. Obviously, Hong Kong was open, but it was mostly Hong Kong domestic stocks, so utilities and Hong Kong property stocks. Uh, China is now about 50% uh, of the benchmark, again, depending how you classify Hong Kong and Taiwanese stocks, higher still if you count them as part of China. So the benchmark's been changing constantly over the last 25 years. Uh, the Ant Tech IPO is just part and parcel of that process. So the bigger, more interesting thing for the benchmark at the moment is whether the 250-odd U.S.-listed China stocks are all going to relist back in Hong Kong, and then they become available to via the Southbound Connect for mainland Chinese investors to invest in. And that has quite an interesting dynamic, because possibly it means that money that gets punted in the Asia market by retail investors in China now gets partly diverted into Hong Kong. So perhaps take some of the heat out of the Asia market, 
and does actually boost up valuations in the Hong Kong market. But at the end of it all, that's not a game we try and play for our fund. At the end of it, we're trying to buy businesses that we think are benefiting from the secular trends as we see them. And we obviously want to buy them at the, the right price where there's sort of material upside to our analyst fair value. So it's an ongoing process, James, and it will continue. China, as we all now know, is the second largest uh, capital market in the world, not surprisingly, because it's the second largest economy in the world. Uh, so that, that is it's just a natural evolution in my view. How do you position a portfolio both strategically for the, um, for, for the, for the secular trends that you identify, um, but also being mindful of bumps in the road, um, for example, in the trade wars and some of the restrictions we've seen on, on technology transfer? Yeah, I mean, I think one has to always be careful. One thing you should never do as a fund manager is think you suddenly have some great political insight um, because you've read something in the FT or the Investors Chronicle the day before. So we don't speculate in politics, um, but obviously when we analyze uh, an investment case for a company, you're looking at the risks for that business and how you know certain eventualities that may or may not come to pass would affect that company's risks. So it's understanding about risks. You never would... Um, decide to base an investment case because you because you think you have some political or economic insight because certainly as I said, I've been doing this for 30 years, you never do. I've seen far too many investors fail because they think they've got some, some wonderful piece of top-down information um, that's going to affect their investment case. So it's basically understanding the investment case for something um, and making sure you've, you've understood the risks that if it's a full commercial Cold War between the U.S. and China, you know, how does that affect this company's business? For Taiwanese stocks, in general, obviously, they're perceived as beneficiaries uh, as long as they can walk the tightrope between the U.S. and China. So, um, so again, it's, it's some, I don't, um, you know, we, when I sit and talk with my colleagues, we, we don't sit and talk about who do we think is going to win the next U.S. election, do we think... Uh, we're going to have modern monetary theory. Do we think we're going to have mass financial repression? Do we think gold's going to $5,000 and we have hyperinflation? It's not really things we debate. It's obviously things you do. When we talk with our analysts and we talk about the fair values for companies, you might say, you know, if the renminbi collapses from 7 to 12, what would that do to your investment case? So how does that affect the balance sheet? How is the debt structured? Um, you know, if you're a renminbi owner with lots of US dollar debt, you've obviously got a currency mismatch. Is that a risk we want to take within that business? So that's the kind of way we work. We don't really, you know, your guess is as good as mine on uh, what US-China relations will make in three years' time as would be. If you, are, if you do this as a podcast, anyone that's listening to the podcast, your guess is as good as mine as well. Um, I have no real idea, to be honest, on that. But, um, but as I said, when we do make up our look at our investment case for stocks. It is something, obviously, we consider as eventualities. How bad does it finish the company's business? So things like, obviously, Huawei, which is not listed, um, their business has effectively been severely structurally impaired because of the U.S.-China uh, tension. So you know, it's understanding companies in China that would be in that Huawei supply chain, you know, do they still have a business going forward and stuff like that? So, which was something we did sit and discuss, you know, this time six nine months ago, you know, because it was quite clear, clear that Huawei was in um, the U.S. government sites, and 
the demise of Huawei as a serious player in 5G telecom infrastructure has had quite big bearings for positively and negatively for, for quite a few stocks in Asia. Okay, so it's interesting. Just explain more about your sort of bottom-up approach for for um, selecting companies and um, and how you assess companies. Can you explain a bit more about um, something that um, I saw in your presentation that you call the real IP thematic focus? Could you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah. So I think it's obviously it partly comes up with something me, my colleague King Sui and I, who I run run the Asian Total Return Fund with, have been been working on, because we do use quite a lot of screens, screens, stock screening within our fund. And one of the metrics that's used within the stock screens is, is not, not, not solely on its own, I should hasten to add, is price to book. And it also comes back to that debate, debate at the moment of value versus growth, which again, I think is one of those debates that's a, a pretty uh, waste of time one, actually, to be frank. Uh, and it really comes down to the fact that the book value of a company, when you've got mass disruption in industries, it's not a very good measure of value. So it, it comes back to Mark Carney, if you remember two or three years ago, he was still Bank of it, the governor of Bank of England, and he was talking about um, ESG trends and moves to green energy. A lot of assets, when you have disruption and rapid technological change, and we've obviously got a move towards, you know, correctly from, you know, clean up the world, better environmental policies, not just in the West. It's a big issue. Uh, in, in China, obviously, and increasingly right throughout Asia, it will create a lot of stranded assets, whether that's thermal power stations, um, factories that make combustion engine cars, because you don't make it electric cars typically, in a factory that makes combustion engine cars, because it's a completely different manufacturing process or a completely different technology. Um, oil and gas assets, coal mines. So, like, you know, if you're thinking of asset heavy companies, a lot of industries. Uh, those assets are now impaired. They're possibly stranded assets or assets worth significantly less. As of course, we're also, you know, again, it's a COVID. It's been a, a tragedy. But one of the things that COVID has done is accelerate a lot of trends that were already there already. And those are things, of course, like e-commerce, working from home. That will create a lot of uh, impaired assets in the property sector, whether it's shopping malls, office buildings, et cetera, et cetera, that everyone talks about in the press. So the, the real point here is, Looking at the book value of something, the stated book value is it, it's not a good measure of value. The real value increasingly of companies, so if you take a, an Alibaba, Tencent, an Amazon, an Apple, their value is not their book value. Their value is their intellectual property, whether that's patents, peoples, brands, processes, websites. It's, these aren't hard assets. They're intellectual property or intangible assets. So that's really what we mean when we're analysing companies these days, you have to get away from thinking about this company's cheap on the best price to book or just looking at companies and simplistic PEs and look at the whole value of a business. And you know, the reason it comes about is really good. It partly comes back to value versus growth debate, which I think is, a, as I was saying earlier, is a fairly pointless debate because the value of a company is intellectual property and it's the intellectual property that will drive earnings. So we need to think about things in a very different way when you've got so much uh, dislocation, disruption, technological change happening. And that's really what we mean about, uh, you know, the intellectual property intangibles. We want companies that are growing their IP, their intangible assets. Uh, and that is where you're going to get the real share price performance, which is why 
you know, everyone could you see all those people saying stock markets, you know, they're all seeing it in the FT, stock markets are inefficient, they're overvalued. I don't believe stock markets are that inefficient. Uh, there may be pockets of the stock market that's overvalued, but I actually think markets have been pretty efficient in um, the sectors that have underperformed, the asset-heavy sectors and the banks and telecoms and those stocks that have done well. They trade at much higher valuations, in my view, because they've got a much, much better outlook. Um, so I don't, see, I, I don't think the stock market is that inefficient. So, um, so obviously in China, there's, there's a lot of sort of good quality IP companies um, that are generating a lot of cash. Um, your portfolio, you, you'd, um, you're, you're less keen on India, um, I think it's probably fair to say, um, which obviously had a much worse experience probably with COVID-19 uh, than even than China has. Um, uh, but also, you mentioned stranded assets. Um, another aspect of, the, of, of your report is, is ESG challenges um, are also particularly a headwind for, for India. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, ESG is a challenge actually everywhere in the region. It's not just an Indian one. Um, there, there was a chart in the presentation actually specifically um, saying it's not because India faces a challenge on the environmental side because its water tables completely denuded. Uh, they've got a massive problem with pollution. It's a, obviously a heavily populated country with 50% of people still living, well, 50% plus living in rural areas. Uh, when you're, you, you, and it's global warming continues as the scientists predict, um, India's particularly vulnerable from an environmental perspective. And it's, actually, the chart was originally used actually because uh, and the, the time I was using it was partly to it was a presentation I was giving in India because uh, or in Asia because India was still talking about building and it still is actually you know hundreds of coal-fired power plants and doesn't seem to it's been the big I mean China's now at least paying lip service to much well, bigger than lip service is at least trying to do something about its pollution but it, I mean we've all seen the numbers the I thought it, but it is 18 of the world's 20 most polluted cities are in India and Pakistan. So India and Pakistan are real laggards in doing anything about their the, the, the environmental issues you have at the moment. But on both those countries' cases, they're two of the most vulnerable countries in the world uh, under global warming. So it was really highlighting that. Uh, but our, our reason for caution in the fund on India is actually predominantly based around valuations of the Indian stock markets. Uh, too expensive. There's some good companies in India. Uh, we like some of the consumer companies. We do own a couple of the, the software companies. Um, we own a couple of banks, but outside the software companies and the banks, we really struggle to, to pay the valuations. You know, the Indian consumer companies trade on 60, 70 times. It's all been hyped up on Mr. Modi's apparently magic wand, whereas there's a lot of structural issues in India. Uh, not just the environmental ones, but I, we actually think will will hold back growth, um, and you know means that actually you know India isn't going to grow as fast as probably consensus thinks because the education system's poor, the infrastructure's poor. If you think about the world and a disrupted world, the fact is the future will probably have very few workers in it. It's a capital good. It's full of robots, or certainly a factory that's doing anything that's value added. Where you have a factory that's a capital good, you'll put it in somewhere where you can get the skilled people you need to operate the factory. So that's robotic engineers, software engineers, um, you know, people that have the, the skill sets to operate a highly automated factory. You want to put it somewhere where you get capital tax breaks. 
uh, and some of you have good rule of law and good protection of IP. So that is not India. And it's not Indonesia, and it's not Philippines, and it's not Thailand either. So a lot of Asia and emerging markets, the lower to middle income countries, we think actually face some quite big challenges to the old growth model. My background is actually economics and emerging market economics, and the old growth model was you moved up the growth curve by industrialization. I don't think that works anymore. Uh, so at the moment, we tend to favor um, markets and stocks that are more exposed to North Asia, so that's both China, Korea, Taiwan, and to some extent Australia, where we see the ingredients for a, a much more sustainable growth growth profile. Um, so that's all. That's really interesting. So, so actually, effectively, sort of ESG issues, um, which you know, rather than being sort of a you know, often ESG is a a marketing label, sort of boilerplate exercise effectively doing proper rigorous ESG becomes pretty integral and material to stock selection for a fund like yours, given some of the, the externalities and challenges that, that some of the, the countries face. Yeah, that's right, James. I mean, if you, if you ever get any of my colleagues at Shoulders, they would probably hate you that you've asked that question because ESG is one of the subjects I'm most passionate about. And passionate from two angles, um, not just from the angle that we all talk about being passionate because we all want to do the right thing and save the world and all that kind of, kind of stuff, but passionate because so much of what I see in our industry um, done in the name of ESG is just greenwashing. It's an excuse to, to charge extra fees to clients and people aren't doing it properly. To do ESG properly, it has to be the starting point in your process and has to be done in a really thoughtful way. Um, and I always laugh. We were actually laughing this morning. Um, we were looking at one of the MSCI ratings for uh, a stock that's really highly questionable, but they've given that AAA rating. Uh, you know, the way MSCI and Sustainalytics, uh, or Sustainex, whatever, no, Sustainalytics, do the ratings, you know, I'm not saying it's all bad, but, you know, it, it is box ticking and it does come out with some very odd scores, uh, both negative, both, it, they're looking entirely incorrect to us. Your ESG needs to be a much more thoughtful process. And at the end of it all, ESG, and I, I've, again, I'm quite vocal at shoulders on this, we've written two or three very long pieces on our fund about how my colleague King Free and I approach ESG so that clients can know how we think about ESG because you know, ESG means different things to different people. Uh, you know, are you vegetarian because it's about animal husbandry or are you vegetarian because you know producing... Meat creates a lot of CO2. Um, palm oil. So most of us would think palm oil is bad. Personally, I think palm oil is quite bad. It's an industry I wouldn't invest in. But you've got about half my colleagues in Asia, particularly those in Indonesia, that thinks palm oil is good because it's the highest calorific crop in the world. So you know, once your palm oil plantation is planted, this is, you know, in terms of environmental impact, once the stuff's there, it's actually a very low impact for the amount of calories you get per, you know, hectare or acre of, uh, of palm oil produced. So you can, you can put each argument both ways, which is why ESG is never box-ticking and never should be treated uh, uh, as many people do, which is effectively greenwashing. So if I, um, I put it to you that, so that, that, that really ESG, we're creating an impossible task for, for ourselves in the investment industry because environmental and social, you know, they're, they're, they're hugely scientific and political. Our expertise is surely on the G, the governance, and yet that seems to be the bit that gets overlooked. Um, what do you think of that? 
And I think that's actually, to be fair, for all actors, managers I've ever met in Asia and emerging markets, or nearly all of them, all the good ones, uh, all, all the ones that you know anyone in UK clients like to look at in their investment universe and see the various ratings, everyone takes governance very seriously. Um, you know, the first box in any research report in Schroeder's is governance, which is who are these people, what's the background, because in Asia and emerging markets, you're nearly always investing as a minority investor with a family or with a government, state-owned enterprises. Personally, we never buy state-owned enterprises for the obvious reasons. I think anyone of a certain age in the UK, and I'm of that certain age that I can still remember the 1970s, you never invest in state-owned companies. So I think most people do take governance very seriously as active managers because it's something we can quantify. That's one of the bits of ESG. You know, it is quite easy to say, you know, is there blatant nepotism in this company? How are you know, have our management rewarded, we've got all, all the data, is there proper practices on equal employment, either by race, religion, sex, you know, we, we can get that data. So actually, that's one I think most, most good fund managers do do properly, or do at least consider properly, there'll be different nuances on how people consider it. It's the, the E and the S that are the ones that are are really, really difficult because they mean different things to different people. Um, the way we approach E, just so you, the, 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 you know, the, the, there is, is we don't buy companies in dirty industries because, you know, I don't, I, you can see the cost of whether it's wind power, solar power, uh, battery technology is dropping off a cliff. Why would I want to own uh, companies and industries that are in secular decline. Why would you want to own railroads in 1920? Why would I want to own a thermal coal plant or an oil and gas company in 2020? Because I doubt they're going to exist in, well, certainly won't exist in 20 years' time. I doubt they're going to exist many of these things in 10 years' time. Um, and then even if they do exist, governments are going to be putting in syntaxes against them as well. So there's multiple reasons why you steer clear of sort of questionable industries or polluting industries, even if you don't believe in global warming, you wouldn't buy these things. So, um, so the E is actually, you know, you, 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 you can approach it from different angles, but it's quite easy to say I'm not some, I'm not some kind of eco-warrior, but I'm not going to, you know, I, I, there's a chart, actually I don't think it's in the pack because I, I, wasn't, I think the guys took it out for you, but, you know, the, the source one and two emissions in our fund are about 15% on, on our numbers of the, uh, the benchmark levels because, we literally own no, no chemical oil and gas companies and, and whatever else. Uh, so, but that's you know, I not because I'm some you know, eco-warrior, but because I just think the industry is just seriously structurally unattractive on a, on a long-term view. But, but going back to the governance, there's obviously, there's um, with you know, China, a huge part of the benchmark, it's a huge area of the growth. Um, it's uh, there is a tightrope to walk. That some of the, the way they do things, just by the virtue of uh, if it's sort of it's still a centrally planned economy with a, with a one party state, um, and there are certain edicts that, that get passed along even through its bigger companies. How do you walk that tightrope when assessing the governance and what's in the best interest of your of your investors in other jurisdictions um, with yeah a fact of something which is basically a fact of life. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fact of life in China. It's a fact of or arbitrary rule of law. Um, I think there's a chart in the back, James, that you can, uh, you, you'll see is that um, you know, emerging markets and Asian markets have not outperformed developed markets 
and it runs back to the time I first turned up in Hong Kong, I think, in 1992. So they've actually underperformed developed markets, obviously, because the US market's done so well. But in 30 years, you know, despite all the growth you've had in Asia, the stock markets, you know, have not been great performers and they've been more volatile. The good news is, uh, good active managers in Asia, that is a lot of alpha, so that's, you know, made up from quite a lot of it. So the, the way you get around it is exactly by saying, I'm not going to buy the cruddy companies that are, you know, beholden to government, so state-owned enterprises. You, you know, it's pretty much, uh, we're not saying we'll never buy one for our fund. We don't own any state-owned enterprises in the fund at the moment. And in the 15 years, the strategy's been going. I think we once owned Scenic, which is a Chinese oil stock, the dim and distant past. But, um, but you know, we don't own... Um, state-owned companies. The other sector we're always being pretty structurally cautious on is banks in Asia, because even if banks are often state-owned, but even if they're not state-owned governments in Asia, China being obviously the obvious one, but it happens everywhere, they tell banks what to do, who to lend to. Um, so the Indian state-owned banks are probably the worst banks I've ever seen in 30 years of investing, because as well as doing what the governments tell them, they're corrupt as well, so they take backhanders by lending to people too. So, you know, it, it's a sector you treat with extreme caution. Um, any sector in Asia where you're competing with state-owned companies, so even if you're a private sector company, but you have to compete with a state-owned one, you tend to be fairly cautious on as well because the playing field gets slanted against you. So what you're trying to do is avoid industries where there's a heavy level of government Direct involvement or government interference, so property infrastructure, again, would be areas of caution, utilities, oil and gas, telecoms, again, sectors we've never been very keen on. So obviously that takes out a huge chunk of the market. So you're, you're left with basically 30, 40 percent, which is technology, best in class exporters, industrials, um, obviously Internet stocks, which are consumer stocks. Uh, and consumer staples and consumer cyclical. So there's a bit, a, a reasonable chunk of the market that the state doesn't tend to interfere with where Mr. Mr. Smith's invisible hand still operates. And that applies to China, it applies to India, applies to Thailand, Indonesia. Um, it, it, it's not that China's the exception to this. It's, it's pretty common regardless of whether you're a quasi-democracy or a, you know, communist state or whatever, each, each system of Asia, you know, it, 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 the, the way we run in Europe and the West is very, very different from the way Asia operates, which goes back to why the, the capital markets in Asia have performed quite you know, differently from, from perhaps what people maybe would have expected, where you've got all this economic growth, but it doesn't come through in stock markets uh, precisely for, for hopefully the reasons we've been, we've been highlighting, James. Excellent. Well, that's um, that's very very interesting. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for your, your time.